Hello. Love Hello there. Mr. John. Are we in business? Hello, John. Yeah. Good to be with you again. Absolutely. Good evening, Tommy. How are you doing, guys? Great. Good. Roy, how are you? 
Very good, thanks. Go ahead, Tommy. You're on. Okay. Uh, I thought Tommy was going to jump in at the beginning, uh, but uh, a number of things happening in, in all areas of sports. Uh, football just got in the underway. First uh, preseason games have been played. A uh, number of teams working on that area. Uh, baseball and uh, Roy, uh, I feel sorry for you. I know you can't be watching those Chicago Cubs any longer. Uh, your life is, and blood was in that Chicago Cubs for so many years. But boy, oh boy, you talk about dismantling a team. They dismantled They don't even have a triple-A team. Haven't missed the game, guys, and they're uh, they're hot. They've won two in a row. <laughs> Bats came alive today, and uh, they. I'll tell you what. You know what? They've got a couple of guys that are making. Uh, ma- they're doing. They're taking advantage of their opportunity. Rafael Ortega, a guy who has spent a lot of time in the minor leagues. Frank Schwindel, another kid who's uh, spent some time in the minor leagues. They're getting an opportunity, and they're trying to make the most of it. Um, had a guy uh, hit his first homer as a Cub. But, a kid from Ottawa, Illinois, uh, today, Michael uh, Hermosillo. Uh, you know, it's not it's not like watching a, a team like maybe the Seattle Mariners, where you know that you've got a bunch of guys there who are young. They're not ready to compete just yet, really. Uh, they're kind of on the outskirts of that. I mean, they're certainly in the wild card race in Seattle. But um, I mean, you look at that Seattle team, and you can see, you know, almost every night you see three, you know, six, eight guys who are, you know, part of the core going forward. We don't know if that's the case with the Cubs. It's a mess there, and uh, it uh, it just gets uglier and uglier. What's amazing is that uh, uh, Kyle Hendricks uh, leads uh, all major league pitchers and wins with 14. He's uh, uh, the, the Cubs have won, uh, I think, 18 of his starts this year. So um, there, there's, there's a couple of good signs there, but uh, overall uh, we don't need to spend much time talking about them. They are They have basically uh, – they're kind of like the Afghan army. They kind of turned tail and ran. I mean, they just they just basically mm-hmm. said, "Forget it. We're done. We're not we're not fighting this fight." Well, Roy, I think there are a couple of things you could really touch on. Uh, one, Brian going out to the Giants, and he's gotten off to a terrific start. He's all talked about now that uh, he's not going to wait for Boris to say yes or no. Uh, he's going to make his own deal if he wants to. He's the boss. He said. Uh, the Yankees have certainly. Uh, uh, with Rizzo, even though he got the, the virus, that's really killed him the last 10 days or so. Hopefully he's going to be back tomorrow and the next day. But uh, they've made a couple of teams that uh, Giants, of course, were in great shape all the way, but Bryant's made them that much better playing so many different positions, three home runs he's hit already over there. And Rizzo did likewise uh, at first base for the Yankees. So the Cubs really made – Two big moves, and both of them helped the team that they sent them to. Yeah, well, you know, Chris Bryant's having a, an MVP-type season, and uh, that continued in San Francisco. You know, a lot of times, guys, we all know this, that, you know, you go to a new place, and uh, the, the change uh, hurts you a little bit. It's hard to, you know, maintain what you were doing uh, in the place you were in before. But, no, Chris Bryant's uh, stepped right in, filled a big hole for them at third base uh, with Evan Longoria out, and he's continued to hit. Uh, like like an MVP, so uh, that that's great for uh, the Giants. It's great for Chris Bryant, and, and what I love to hear that somebody has kind of stood up to to uh, uh, Scott Boris a little bit and said, uh, you know, hey, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make the deal I want. Uh, it sounds, I mean, we don't know where it's gonna go just yet, but it sounds like Chris Bryant is not chasing the money as much as he's chasing the opportunity 
to win consistently. He's not going to just go somewhere uh, to make sure that he sets the uh, the bar for uh, the next, uh, you know, the elite third baseman in the league going forward on ter- in terms of you know free agent deals. It sounds like he, he's you know he'll he'll take two or three million dollars a year less perhaps to to go to a place where he believes, uh, first of all, where he's comfortable, where his family's comfortable, and uh, and where he can uh, he, he can win. And and that very well may be the West Coast. I mean, he's a Las Vegas kid. Uh, you know, it could end up being San Francisco. He may stay there. I don't think. I really don't think he, Baez, and uh, Chris and Anthony Rizzo are headed back to Chicago. It doesn't seem that way. May, you know, maybe one of them gets back, but boy, I got to think that the the, the Yankees um, and, and I, I, Anthony Rizzo just may he, he he may as much as he is such a part of Cubs lore now. It, it's it's another thing to be with the Yankees and to to win a World Series there for that franchise and to be a part of that. I think he may really, you know, fall in love with that situation and decide to stay in New York. Um, you know, Baez, he could come back, but um, the Cubs are kind of gearing up for, for other situations with shortstop. So we'll see, but uh, you're right. Uh, the, the three best uh, players that, you know, have, were moved at the uh, trade deadline came from Chicago. And um, if two of them can get healthy, they can probably make an impact to their team. You know, what's interesting is you look at the, at the Mets and, um, well, they've lost, uh, what, 10 of 14, I think it is now recently. They've really hit the skids, and uh, no one <clears throat> expected that. Of course, I mean, they've, they've lost a lot of key pieces. DeGrom's still not back. Uh, and like not, and closer, probably but... not going to be back. And the, the uh, Mets yeah. did win this afternoon at Candlestick. They went in the ninth inning trailing one nothing, But they did win the game to break the losing streak. And one other point uh, that i like to bring up, and then we'll go to Roger and Tommy and get some of their uh, – observations on baseball or whatever they like to talk about. Uh, not only did the Cubs make, in my view, two teams real pennant contenders and maybe World Series contenders, but they absorbed all the money. Baez, uh, the Mets said they would not go over the, uh, uh, what is it, $180 million ceiling. So the Cubs took back most of the money for Baez to keep the Mets under that. And, the, and in Rizzo's case, they took it all back. I mean, I, I don't understand. If I'm a general manager, i got to scratch my head a little bit and say, what's going on? Well, the general manager in this case decided that uh, the, the farm system was, was so kind of depleted that, that they needed to start getting something back for these guys. I don't think they got grade A prospects. I think they got a couple of grade Bs. I mean, Cody Hoyer is probably the best return on, on, the, on the exchange that they got. Um, and that didn't even, you know, that didn't even get you. That, that was for Craig Kimbrell. So, um, you know, they they really really didn't make a, you know, the deal there. And so we'll see where it goes. Um, but they felt like they really needed to get something for these guys. Uh, they weren't going to, you know, they thought the worst situation was that these guys all walk. Um, I think they felt like, you know, money-wise, it's probably not an issue. They, they don't necessarily care about the money. Um, in Chicago, they've got, you know, they're fine there and they're going to be what they've got to like, they're going to be like $120 million under the cap or not. There is no cap, but they're, they're going to be like $120 million under that, uh, that, uh, you know, luxury, luxury tax. Uh, yeah. The luxury tax, uh, when they start, uh, putting this team together in, in the off season. So they got plenty of opportunity here to, um, uh, you know, to, to get anybody back and, and spend the money. But, 
No, I think they're looking at other targets. I really are. I think they're looking at people like uh, Castellanos and uh, maybe Korea, shortstop, things like that. I mean, uh, there's an opportunity out there to completely reshape this team, and uh, I think that's where they're headed. Well, let me get Roger in here because uh, we sort of dominated the first part of the show, but as Atlanta Braves are uh, are doing pretty well. they got 64 wins right now and a little breathing room in the uh, – National League East. Roger, maybe you want to go to football. Maybe you want to go to something else. No, go no. to it in Atlanta. We, no, want we'll, you, we want to hear what Atlanta has to say. Well, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Uh, you know, Roy, when you brought up uh, Kyle Hendricks and the number of win, what, 14 wins? Shades of 1972. And Steve Carlton <laughs> with the number of wins he had in all of the Phillies wins, the percentage. Okay, that's what it brought back to me. But I'll tell you what, with the Braves, they're they're looking good. Uh, I think we've all been waiting for this. They've got a couple of game lead over the Phillies now, and one of the guys that has really impressed me that all of uh, you know all of you uh, are familiar with. And I'll tell you what, this guy gives you a, a consistent game almost every game. Charlie Morton. And you get innings from him. He's up the bat right now. It's a nothing, 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 nothing game in uh, Miami. But I'll tell you, I, you know, I've seen him in the past with a number of teams. Uh, but he just, to me, he's just a workhorse. I'd like to have, uh, you know, your input with, you know, Roy, Don, Tommy. Well, Char- Roger, I-, I agree with you. Charlie Morton, look, there's a reason that the people here in Tampa Bay, and I, I know you know the situation, but. There's a reason right. that people here in Tampa Bay were just, you know, uh, absolutely perplexed and furious over the fact that um, uh, the, this team let Charlie Morton go. I mean, they knew that they were going to lose Blake Snell. That that Snell decided he's had, he'd had enough after he got pulled in that World Series game. He was moving on. But you had a chance to keep Charlie Morton. You had a chance to keep the eight of your staff. And they moved him. And it's, it's, it's incredibly remarkable that the, the Rays have, you know, stayed in contention, well, contention, stayed in first place, um, you know, could, could arguably be the best team in the American League without these pitchers. But you're seeing what, why, you're seeing why the, the people here in Tampa Bay were just absolutely furious uh, when Charlie Morton got let go. Talk about a game. I mean, this is a guy who, who just gets better and better as he, you know, gets older. He's one of those yeah, kind of pitchers who just right. gets smart. He's like, you know what? He, he's he's kind of like Adam Wainwright, although Wainwright is far, certainly further down the road. But, you know, you're talking about very similar type pitchers who just just use their smarts. Uh, you don't have to have the best stuff, but, I mean, let's face it, Morton's got one of the best curveballs in all of baseball. Uh, and, and, you know, a full package of pitches to go with it. So, uh, but, but, yeah, you're right. He is um, He is a key piece there. And when you got a guy like that, you can roll out every five days. Boy, oh boy, you're going to be a contender. And as we all thought it would be, the Braves are again. Roger, I'll throw a comment in real quickly. And, uh, you know, I've been saying Braves all year. I I know they got off to a disastrous start. Everything sort of fell apart. They lost maybe uh, one of the best players in the National League uh, for the rest of the season. Uh, But I still thought they were by far the better team between the Phillies and the Mets and uh, some of the other teams within the National League East. Uh, so my answer to you would be uh, I expected the Braves to come on, and, boy, are they really coming on now. They've just, uh, they've just been dynamite. You know, yeah, Don, they're doing it right at the right time that. of the and, season. And you mentioned, 
Don, you mentioned the fact that they lost Acuna, Ronald Acuna Jr. Right, what's right. amazing to me is that in a division that was kind of up for grabs, the Miami Marlins went out and let and gave away Adam Duvall to them to fill that void. Right. And there's a guy, I mean, who just, boy, talk about a clutch home run hitter. It's like every time Adam Duvall hits a homer, it's a big homer. It's not like he's hitting them in, you know, when they're leading six to one. He's right. hitting them when they're down four to three, and uh, and he comes up big. I'm really surprised that uh, that that move was made by the Marlins. Now I know they want to see these young players. They got a slew of really good looking young prospects in the outfield, um, and again, uh, free agency and all that stuff looming. You, you have to make these deals. But boy, to move them to Atlanta. Uh, which, again, now that's starting to really uh, – it, it, it could hurt Miami and keep them out. So just an interesting take there. I wanted to get that in. Sorry to talk over you, Roger. Well, no, I'll I tell you what, Don and, and uh, Roy and Tommy and Frank, the other thing is the management made some other good moves in in acquisitions before, right at before and, and at the uh, trade deadline. And it's, you're right, Roy, that was a big one. But there were some other acquisitions that have really played, uh, paid uh, dividends for this team. And that just shows you, you know, when they have the depth in the minor leagues like they did to be able to make that deal and still have plenty left uh, in their system, that just tells you it's, it's a well-run organization. Whereas if you look at the Phillies for the five years, Andy McPhail and Mike uh, – Clench uh, um, attack were there. Nothing. The, the the minor leagues is almost bare, and that's sad. I mean, it, that's totally uh, incompetence, in my opinion, uh, of the baseball operation for five years. And, and you know I think what? it's unfortunate for Joe Girardi now because uh, you know he had them uh, in a little bit of a winning streak. They won eight in a row, but they were playing less than competition. Uh, which gave them right. the opportunity to win the eight. And as soon as they got back into the real major league play, players, uh, they fell right where they are right now. And, and, and uh, you know, they may go on the West Coast and not get a win. I mean, they're going to have a lot of well, trouble. And, uh, well, and they lost last night, Don, to Arizona, which is I watched the whole game. I watched the whole game, and I watched great. not only that, but the postgame show as well. And that's all they talked about at a postgame. How can you lose to a team with the worst winning record in the Nash in, in baseball, baseball. Yeah, guys, I think we I think we knew all along that the Phillies were were, were just I mean, just just a team that just didn't have the they're just not stable enough to compete in that. Well, they're competing in the division. I shouldn't say that, but to win that division, they're just the the pitch the starting pitching just isn't good enough. I mean, look, you're getting a career year uh, out, of, out of out of Harper uh, out of Bryce Harper, and you know. You've still got a couple of holes here and there in, in that team. You're getting – look at McCutcheon, 21, you know, plus homers here. Um, and, and so you're getting these guys – you're getting, you know, big seasons out of guys, and it's still not quite enough. And it's because, for me anyway, in my opinion, it's just the, the starting pitching just isn't quite the quality that it needs to be. Um, you just need a couple more arms there for this to – in order to beat a team, you know, consistently, be ahead of the Mets, to be ahead of the Braves. Uh, the Braves have more depth, and that's something else the Phillies don't have. There's not a lot of depth there. Um, so, you know, I'm not surprised that they've fallen off a little bit. Look, they could still get hot again. Um, they're getting some good seasons, as I said, out of a lot of guys. So it could still happen, not likely, but uh, you're right. It, it's pretty hard when you're in the situation they're in, uh, even to be on the road, 
uh, and lose to a team like Arizona. You can't let that happen. You really can't because uh, well, I think they've you, had you know for a fact that I think uh, Roy they've lost had more lost saves than any team in baseball. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and and that's the other issue is that they never have really uh, figured out that bullpen. It's been no. you know three four years, and you know and that's really kind of incredible because. It seems like almost every other team in the league can throw just about anybody into that situation, and it works for them. You know, the Rays right. don't have a closer, closer, but they close out games. Uh, Miami, you know, they just decided. I mean, they get get rid of Yimi Garcia, which again, another head scratching move in my opinion, uh, for a team that's in competition here for the division, uh, a quality closer in my opinion. But they hand the job to Dylan Floro, and he's been fine. And you've got Anthony Bass who could do it. Um, it's just amazing how even with Hector Neris and, uh, you know, some of the people they've got, Archie Bradley, you still don't really have a closer there. You know, you've got guys who've done it, but they don't really have somebody that you can absolutely 100% rely on. And uh, I'm a little surprised they didn't go after Craig Kimbrell a little bit harder. Maybe they did, and they just didn't have the pieces to give up. But um, a little surprised at that, to be honest with you, because I think that would have solved a lot of problems there. Well, the Phillies have now gone, uh, I think Roger will agree with me, they've gone five years now without a bullpen. I mean, you're talking about yeah, oh, one, not just not just a shaky bullpen. I'm talking about the worst in the National League. I'm talking about a, a bullpen that gives up better than six runs a game. But uh, let's come back to Tampa for a minute. Tommy, you're in Tampa. What can you tell us uh, about the Rays? What do you like about that? And what can Roy add to that? Pitching, pitching, pitching was championships. Kevin Cash got these guys playing some good baseball right now, but his pitching's all pitching right now. Clutch hitting, pitching, and we picked up Cruz from Minnesota. That was your key spark for home runs and everything that way. And what about oh guys? What about is it Gilbert? Sports History Sunday, I should say Saturday. Ryan Gilbert pitched no hitter for the Arizona Diamondbacks during their career, and that was his first start in major leagues to do do a feat like that. That's that's unbelievable. Well, I think yeah, that, that was question. that was uh, that was something special for sure, Tommy. You're right. Uh, Tyler Gilbert in his first start, he pitched three games before that for Arizona in relief, but he gets a you know spot start, goes out and throws a, a no hitter. His father's in the stands, his uncle's in the stands. That was a that was a great moment. It really was. And but <laughs> you know, Tommy, you did, you nailed it. Um, you're right about the Rays. It's it's all about pitching. And again, you know, we started off this uh, segment, guys, talking about how how in the world could the Rays get rid of Charlie Morton? Well. They're smarter than everybody because they can get rid of Blake Snell, Charlie Morton, and they you know what, as Tommy said, they still got the pitching. They find a way, and it's incredible how they do it. Um, I don't know if it's the stadium or what. I mean, look, they're benefiting from the fact that right now they're playing the uh, uh, the Orioles. Um, but, you know, not every, they're not playing the Orioles every night. Oh. You know, they go out and they beat, uh, they beat teams. They beat them with pitching. They beat them with defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get just enough hitting. And uh, and they took advantage of the Yankees when they were really down. Yeah, right. Yeah, they've had some good fortune, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, that's only going to carry you so far. At the end of the day, you got to be able to, you got to be able to pitch it, hit it, catch it, and boy, oh boy, they find a way every sing every season to get it done. And it's really remarkable. You know, they've got again, this is a team without a superstar. They don't have one. You know, there, there a lot of the talk here around the All Star break was. You know the Rays will have a have an All Star, but who will it be? And it's, and when a lot of guys got got snubbed, people were saying, well, you know, this guy should have got 
made it the all-star team looks like, wait a minute, it's an all-star team. Who's the star on the team? There, there isn't one. You know, Randy Orozarena, you know, made some made some noise last year in the playoffs, obviously, and people know. Yeah, who he's not hitting about two twenty-three. Yeah, but you know, I mean, is, is Joey Wendell your idea of a superstar? No. Uh, you know, who who is it? Uh, Yandy Diaz? No. Uh, Mike Zanino, because he hits 20 homers? Well, I guess that's the guy. So, you know, that's the kind of team they are. They don't have stars. Um, half the people in baseball, even the diehards, couldn't name their manager, uh, couldn't name who their starting rotation is. And, uh, and by the way, they're, they're just now getting back tonight. One of their top starters uh, throughout the cor- over the course of the last two years is Ryan Yarborough. So they do things differently in Tampa, guys. It's just that simple. They do things differently, but they find a way to win. Well, fellas, I want to get into a little football, but we're just out of time. Roy, as always, take care of everything down there in Tampa for us and keep your eye on the Bucks. Well, next week we'll talk a little football and uh, we'll talk about the Rays at the same time. Thank you very much. Works for me, guys. Have a great week, Roy. Thanks for having me. Have a great week. Jimmy DiLorenzo is on the phone right now, a Philadelphian (laughs) who most of us all know works for the Enquirer, of course, and is now working in public relations and – I've had an opportunity to, to work a little bit with Jimmy over the last few uh, weeks about some of the things he's doing. And, Jim, first of all, welcome to the show. And uh, t- secondly, uh, tell us about this young man that wrote a book about Villanova making the transition from high school football to Villanova sure. football to the personality that he changed to become a, a college student. Well, uh, thank you for having me on, first of all, Don and Roger and, and company. It's it's great to, to be talking with you guys. And, uh, Don, you and I go way back to my days when I was a kid growing up in Trenton and uh, working as a stringer at the Trentonian before I went to Villanova as an undergrad and then worked in the athletic department you, in Villanova for all those years. You carried Jim bag. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all a good um, – proving ground for it for for and it's helped me uh, considerably in my life being both from Trenton and from Villanova uh yeah well let's add uh, on to that Jim Uh, somebody else Giorgio Gorman okay oh yeah (laughs) Giorgio Gorman and Joe Logue and and all all the gang what a great what a great group they were I didn't mean they really were gentlemen and and and, uh, first class teachers so uh you had mentioned um I'm working with a young man um, who I've known for about 30 years. His name is Bodine Sanders, and he's from Jacksonville, Florida. And he always wanted to play football. And he got kind of talking to walking on to the high school football team in Jacksonville and, and did pretty well there. And he um, was persuaded by his friends that maybe he could go to Cheney State University uh, in, in the Philadelphia suburbs and uh, walk on to the football team there. And he had never been out of Jacksonville in his life. He, he uh, uh, rode uh, in a car up to uh, Philadelphia and then the, the Cheney campus. And he walked on to the football team and he had a pretty good year uh, playing football at Cheney. And he made the acquaintance of a lot of people in the Philadelphia area who said that he, he, could, he could probably walk out of Villanova now that they were bringing football back. Now, this is in the mid-1980s when Villanova had dropped football after the 80 season in the spring of 1981, and then they brought it back in the fall of 1984 as a Division I AA school at that time. 
and Bodine Sanders walked on to the football team at Villanova, uh, transferred from Cheney to Villanova. And what he was experiencing during that time, and he's written about this in his book, Race Against Against Race, which is now available on um, Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble and through, um, um, through other websites. He wrote a book about his experiences being an African-American young man, first from Jacksonville, migrating to the Philadelphia area, going to a historically black college or university, and then transitioning from there to a predominantly white college at Villanova, and the experiences he had assimilating and uh, making friends, meeting people, learning different ways of relating to his teammates, his classmates, the people he was meeting along the way. And he's really turned this into a great uh, memoir that deals with the issues of race and diversity and inclusion from a really realistic and positive point of view. The way Bo described his book to me when he was writing it and what inspired me to want to work with him again after so many years to help him promote the book is that when we hear people on the news and we hear people on radio talking about we need to have a conversation about race, what Bodine's point was was that you just don't have that conversation with a random stranger. You can't really have a meaningful conversation about race and diversity and inclusion with a total stranger. You really have to get to know that person first, and they have to get to know you in order to have a meaningful dialogue and to really have um, a productive conversation and a positive conversation. The way some of these pundits on television talk about the conversation about race, it always seems to be a kind of a confrontational aspect. And what Bodine is talking about in his book, and which I heartily recommend to anyone uh, to take a look at, is this positive nature of, I'm meeting all these different people. I went to this predominantly African-American school, transferred to predominantly white school. Uh, these are the people I met. These are the experiences I had. And this is how I learned how to relate to people beyond sports, beyond college sports, and in life in general, and how he has managed to build a career for himself in sports and marketing, and then becoming an author for the first time, and going out there and speaking to young, uh, young people, uh, current students, uh, people who are just kind of getting their, getting their start in the world, and his experiences being a positive force for meeting people and conversing with people and building relationships. Jim Z. Lorenz is our guest right now for this segment of the program, and Roger, let me you jump in. Uh, we talk about Trenton, and uh, Jim, I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with Roger or not. He's worked all over the, the uh, metropolitan Trenton area for Princeton and uh, so forth and so Absolutely. on. Roger, jump right in. Well, Jim, I, w- I want to just follow up. I can't wait to re- – I'm going to get this book. It's, it sounds fascinating. But I'll tell you, this young man could not have gone <coughs> excuse me, under the tutelage of a better coach in person than Andy Talley. Uh, this when is Andy true. When came, came back and took over Villanova from uh, – 
the uh, outset uh, when they brought football back coming out of St. Lawrence. And he and I graduated from Haverford together. Uh, and uh, I've talked to him and interviewed him many times. And, uh, I remember. You know, it's, it, yeah, he's just a, uh, a terrific uh, guy. But, you know, one of the things that uh, I have found, because I get your uh, press releases and everything about all the different, you know, the regatta and everything else you're involved in, but what was it that took you out of uh, sports writing into a very successful PR uh, business that you have? Well, thank you for asking that, Roger. And, and I will have to say that sports writing was my first love. Um, I got involved in sports when I was in high school in, in, in the Trent, New Jersey area at Notre Dame High School. I had a very good group of teachers and coaches and mentors at Notre Dame, including a Villanova grad by the name of Chappie Moore, who played yeah, on the Villanova football team in the early... yeah. I'm sorry? I know a very yeah. good friend of mine. As a matter of fact, I worked for him. He's a good man. He was he was a, a major role model for me, and he's the guy who steered me towards Villanova. And he always told me things about this other guy that had been at Villanova by the name of Jim Murray. And he always yeah. told me stories about Jim Murray did this and Jim Murray did that. And he says. You should, you could you, you could be the next Jim Murray, and I'm 17 years old. And I have no Jimmy, idea let me just talking. interrupt for a second because a lot of people across the country aren't going to know who Jim Murray was because it's been a long time since he was on the front page of papers or the back page. So Jim's the former general manager for the uh, Philadelphia Eagles and uh, a number of other things, and really began the McDonald Ronald McDonald houses as he was a part of the Eagles at that time. Just to throw that Absolutely. in as a sidebar. Go ahead, Jimmy. Good point, Don. So, yeah. So, so, Chucky Moore, a Villanova guy at my high school, steers me towards Villanova, tells me stories about Jimmy Murray working in the Villanova Sports Information Office, working at the school paper, being a football manager, being a baseball manager. I start doing all those things when I get to Villanova, and I'm not even thinking of Jimmy Murray. I've never met Jimmy Murray. I've started to hear the name more. By the time I'm a senior at Villanova, I have met Jimmy I've learned that all the things that I've been doing for the four years as an undergrad are the same things that he was doing. And I saw that my career in public relations could be a winning formula for success. So I got involved in public relations at Villanova. After 15 years on campus, I went into uh, uh, professional tennis for a year. Then I worked for one of the first Internet uh, businesses in the world for a couple of years. And it was around that time, the late 1990s, where I had the, the vision and the, the spirit to start my own business, to start as a public relations professional. And really what I do in public relations is a growth from those early roots. I'm, sto I'm telling stories. And I'm telling stories about my clients. I'm telling stories about my colleagues. I'm telling stories about my friends. And I'm telling positive stories. I don't want to do the crisis management. I don't want to be the guy on the scene of, a, of, a, of an explosion or, or a fire or who has to give the details. I want to tell the good stories about people's successes, their, 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 um, their accomplishments, the good things that people are doing. So that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years or so on my own as a consultant and as an uh, entrepreneur, and it's been a really rewarding career for me, and it's all part of that sports writing, 
good stories, storytelling experiences that I had in my youth that have kept me, kept me going ever since. Well, Jim, I just wanted to say a couple things. Number one, we need more people like you stressing the positive rather than the negative. That's number one. But the other thing is, since you brought Chappie's name up, I don't know if you're aware of this. I've brought it up on the show several times in the past. Are you aware that he cut Gino Oriema from the Bishop Kendrick freshman basketball team? Yes, I, yes, I am. Yes. You know that he has story. Some, he, yeah. He's had some interesting back uh, people in his, <laughs> in his past that he's encountered, which is really an amazing story in and of itself. Well, I, I asked Gino at a press conference one time, you know, and at Big East uh, Media Day, and I oh, you know, we're walking to lunch, and I, I waited around, and I said, you know, there's a rumor in Mercer County that Chappie Moore cut you from the Kendrick uh, freshman basketball team. And he looks at me and says, that's not a rumor. That's a fact. And then he told me the whole story. <laughs> well, I think the other fact that you can put in there, fellas, is the fact that uh, Digger hey. Phelps, when he was going to Ryder College, he got turned down by one of the junior schools in Trenton as a basketball coach. They said they didn't want him to coach <laughs> in basketball in Trenton, so he winds up as an assistant, then goes on to Fordham, of course, has that undefeated season, or maybe he lost one game somewhere in there. And then now Notre, and then to Notre Dame, and uh, Digger Phelps became a legend out there at Notre Dame. So you never can I tell, think- fellas. You never can tell. You, you never know. Makes You're right, takes, Don. You know that. That's right. That's it. The bridge is there. The, Jim, what you know, you're you're active. I know uh, in the uh, sports writers, and you know, uh, Don and I obviously were good friends. You're good friends with Larry Litwin, but you know, he's done yeah. such a magnificent job of developing students at Rowan for in the field of public relations over the years. We have to get. I mean, give Larry a lot of credit. I mean, for the sports writers. You know, I mean, what he goes through, because I just had lunch with he and his wife a couple of weeks ago down here because their daughter and her family live in the Atlanta area. He uh, He's a real, genuine, good guy, and he's done so much for um, people, young people who want to get in the public relations field or the communications field, and he's also done so much for the Philadelphia Sports Writers Association, which could really have been a dead end for him because uh, it was kind of it kind of hit an iceberg when uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s when more and more online media started to come into being and there was a contingent of the Sports Writers Association that was really old school and God bless them they had been there for a long time but they didn't want to have anything to do with the, these new uh, up and coming uh, sports media types and I think Larry really saw where the future was going and, and kind of steered the organization through those rough waters to, to doing more and more with the, uh, the burgeoning digital uh, first types of media type, types that we now have in the world. Jimmy, I think one thing you chatted on a little bit about Villanova, but they came out of the ashes. 1980, as you said, uh, they decided they weren't going to be involved in football anymore, especially in Division One. And it took them, what, four years to get themselves back together again and start to be the program over again. But I think the smartest move they made, and there has been pressure from the Big East from way back to get back up in Division One, But administratively, they've rejected that. They're not going to go to Division One. They're going to stay where they are, be successful, 
and not have to go out and spend all kinds of money for no reason. Absolutely right. And, you know, um, one of the people, the other people who have been a crucial factor in my life was a gentleman by the name of Tedesito, who was the athletic director at Villanova yeah. for so many years. And he was the athletic director um, who he really guided me. Uh, and he, I owe a big deal of my um, success in my early years, especially, and some of the inspiration for what I've done from Ted. And he passed away recently, and it was a kind of a sad day for me to uh, be at his uh, funeral. But it brought back so many memories because Ted was one of the ones who um, disagreed with the, the idea of dropping football in 1981. Um, he had played football at Villanova in the 1960s, and, in fact, he was the quarterback of their last a bowl game team in the Liberty Bowl in 1962. And um, he was also a teammate of Chappie Moore. That's how I came to know him as well. And Ted really took the, took the ball and ran with it as far as bringing football back, getting finding the right place for us. Because even in the 1980 season when Howie Long was a senior and I was the freshman manager, uh, that was a really good team. But we were a Division One independent. And even at that point, the Division One Independent really couldn't do too much. And uh, when, when the decision was made to bring football back, finding the right level for it, going at Division One AA, which is now the, 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 the uh, FCS, the Football Championship Series, uh, they, won the, they won the 2009 National Championship when all the other schools that were in the Big East and had football and decided to go Division One, like Connecticut, Connecticut's football team has, is dying on the vine. It's, co- it's cost them millions and millions of dollars uh, that they will never get back. And now they're thinking about dropping back down to Division One AA or the, or the FCS, where they've spent millions and millions of dollars in Division One. And we were in the Yankee Conference at the time. It's now um, the, I, I'm not even sure what it is what we call it now these days, but. They really found the right place for Villanova football, and it's been a success. And Andy Talley drove that success. Ted Aceto found the right people to help Andy Talley drive that success. And now Mark Ferrante is doing a great job in, in continuing that success. Jimmy, let's go back well, to the head of the show for just a moment before we run out of time because uh, you're working with this young man and, and out of Florida uh, who uh, – you know, made the long haul and finally went up at Villanova. And, and, and let's uh, give us the name of the book. Give us the location where the people can pick it up. And uh, tell us a little bit more about the young man because there was a transition for those listening. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida, you're talking about a, a player that went to an all-black school and then went to Villanova. And so he had to make all different relationships uh, in what was predominantly a white school. So give us the name of the book and where everybody could get it. Absolutely. The name of the book is Race Against Against Race, and it's by a young man by the name of Bo hyphen Bo hyphen Dean D E A N Sanders, and Bo Dean Sanders has a website Bo hyphen Dean Sanders dot com, and you can buy the book there. Again, it's it's Race Against Against Race, and the book is also available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble as well as Books a Million, Pals, City of Books, and other uh, online bookstores. And, Jim. again, he, he hailed from Jacksonville, Florida. He went to an all-black high school, Jean Ribot High School. He was a 
Fellowship of Christian Athletes Faculty of the Year, went to Cheney, transferred from Cheney to Villanova, and has gone on to some great successes in his career. But the book tells his story as a walk-on football player, finding his way through a predominantly white student population and, and succeeding and growing and building up relationships with people. Well, Jimmy, it was great talking to you, and uh, we're out of time for this segment because we got another football guy coming up next, Ira Coffin, who uh, works for ESPN and, of course, uh, has worked in the Tampa area for so many years, one of the real football minds as we talk about it, and he's standing by. But, Jimmy, thank you very, very much, and I hope we'll get you you back on. Hope we'll get you back on with another topic soon. I appreciate it, Don. Roger, thank you, and stay well. You, you got too. it. Hey, Ira. Thanks, Jim. Ira. Ira. Ira Gaffin, you are up next. And, uh, Ira, I am right here. I am right here, gentlemen. I am right here. Uh, I know you are. Ira, so. the Hall of this Fame, way. I brought it up now. You know, you talked about uh, David Baker, the job that he's done. The Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, is now a real destination, isn't it? Well, there's no question about it. I've been there four or five times, and this time, a couple of weeks ago, I took my wife. She had never been there, and, you know, if I'm going to make the speech for somebody and and fortunate enough that they get in, the, the Saps, the Brookses, the Tony Dungies, Ed Sable from NFL Films, and now John Lynch, um, and they're in the in, uh, induction uh, ceremony, I'm going to show up. Uh, so we were there. Um, we went to a swank John Lynch party the night before. Uh, he had a musical guest by the name of Lionel Richie. He pulled he pulled that one out of his hat. So that was pretty good. Um, and so I, I saw a lot of people from the O2 Bucks, of course, the Mike Allstott. Joe Juravicious was there. Rondé Barber was Brad Johnson. Shelton Quarles. Uh, Rich McKay showed up with, with his... Uh, with his guys from the personnel department from the old days um, and uh, had a good time. And then, of course, Sunday was the induction. Uh, we went to the hall, and, of course, you want to go to the hall, you want to go to the room with all the busts in it. That, that's, that's the highlight. And so we went up there, and I see, like, the line stretched forever. Uh, and, of course, this is like three hours before the ceremony, so the place was absolutely packed. I mean, that's their big weekend. And so I asked one of the volunteers, hey, what's, uh, what, how long is the wait from this point into the room? And he, he said an hour and 15 minutes. And, oh, wow. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, so I had a little uh, chain around my neck, you know, that said enshrinement. So he said, who are you? I said, well, I'm the selector for Tampa Bay. What's your name? I gave him the name. He made a phone call. He opened, he opened up the ropes, gentlemen, and we walked right in ahead of 500 people. And, uh, and, and, well, they, and they're still cursing good. me. They're still cursing me. And, and when we he's got good. in, you know, what we saw was that uh, there was the Derek Brooks bust, and right across, right across on the other side was Warren Sapp staring right at Brooks and Brooks staring right at Sapp. You know, John Madden, John Madden used to say that at night uh, after the janitors go home, the bus talk to each other. You know, so I asked Brooks the other day, what, 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 what are you saying to Sap over there in the middle of the night? And, and he said, I'm, I'm saying, why are you staring at me? So go look somewhere else. Stop looking at me. Uh, who's, John Lynch, who's that, who's and, next and up Lynch. on your agenda? Who are you going to present next? 
Well, you know, it never ends, gentlemen. I mean, it never ends. I mean, I was so relieved, you can imagine, uh, with the John Lynch uh, selection after eight years um, because, you know, I had a little early fortune with with Sapp and Brooks. Uh, Brooks was easy. Anybody could have got Brooks in, and and Dungey took three times. But but Lynch was a finalist eight straight years. I mean, that's eight straight speeches. Of course, it's a different speech each year. and no sooner was the Lynch announcement made than I had Buck fans on my back about Rondé Barber. Uh, right. Simeon Rice, some of them want All-Star in. Uh, that's not going to happen, unfortunately, because they look at him as a fullback, even though he wasn't really a traditional fullback. Um, but my, my, my sights are set on Rondé Barber um, because last year he was a finalist. He was one of the final 15, and so I made my first speech about Rondé Barber. You know, the more you look at Rondé Barber, and this is for guys that didn't watch him play, the guys in Houston and Jacksonville and Pittsburgh and Seattle, they they didn't watch Rondé Barber like we did. Um, but unlike Lynch, he's got numbers. He's got numbers all over the place. And he's a very unique player. Um, so that's my pitch for Rondé Barber. It's a different kind of a it's a different kind of slant than you had with Lynch. Lynch didn't have big numbers, but he had huge impact on, on that great defense. Barber stands alone. Uh, you don't have to talk too much about the Tampa 2. You just got to talk about Rondé. Of course, he made the biggest play in Buck history, without question. Um, the pick against uh, Donovan McNabb that, that sent him to the Super Bowl. And he's got a lot going for him, Rondé Barber. I hope they go in with open minds. And if you go in with an open mind, you realize that Rondé Barber is one heck of a candidate. Yeah, well, you've saying, talked about I, it a few I, times, I, how difficult it is and what your, what your role is in making these presentations and the people in that room. Tommy, we haven't heard from you for a minute or two, so Tommy, jump in. Ira, guess what I saw today in the golf course? <laughs> oh, are you Are you back on the don't, – don't tell me you played St. Leo, Tommy. Don't tell me. I played there a couple of weeks ago, but I have to get you up for Hernando Oaks, our beautiful golf course. They got deer running around there, turtles up there, and you had your favorite bird up there. You didn't kill a sand crane, did you, Tommy? You didn't kill a sand crane. <laughs> no, but I saw him. I said, yeah, I said your name, and they started running. <laughs> hey, Ira, i got to tell you something yeah. about Tommy, Frank, and Don. They none of them watched the Hall of Fame uh, with the induction ceremonies, and I brought this up last week, and I want your opinion. I thought that Peyton Manning's speech—they were all good, all the speeches—but I thought his was a roadmap to the future of football. Period. What did you think? I'm with you 100 percent. Boy, what a natural that guy is! What a natural. Uh, he he could do anything he wants. He he might be a commissioner. I mean, after Goodell, he might be. Um, right. He lo- he loves the game. He's got a great sense of humor. It was a tremendous speech. And by the way, I gotta I gotta salute the hall because they said they were gonna cut down on how long these speeches were. They 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 rambled for thirty thirty five minutes. Uh, you, you know, for years and years, and and now they told him to hold it to six to eight. And you know what? I thought it was all better. It was better. It was. Um, You're right. And uh, to me, the highlight of the whole weekend, for me personally, was sitting there, uh, my wife next to me, we're in the buck section, and then John Lynch mentions my name, you know, with his thank yous. I mean, and I said to my wife, I said, did you just hear what Lynch said? 
I looked at her. She looked like she uh, she looked like she saw a ghost. She she couldn't believe what just happened. Um, <laughs> and so I, I've heard from you know my brother was watching and this person was watching and it's on national television and uh, it was nice to get a shout out because you know what? Not a lot of guys mention the selectors in their speech. Not a lot of guys. And of course this year you only had six or eight minutes. So what a class move by by Lynch. What a, what a class act he is. But you can't beat Peyton Manning. You just can't beat him. Uh, you see him in the commercials. He's great. Um, he's a natural. He's just uh, he's one of a kind. One of a kind. Well, Mad Dog talks about you enough, so you're getting your publicity. ESPN, you and Mad Dog are on top of the world. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'll I'll be doing I'll be doing Mad Dog with Sirius Radio in in a couple of weeks. Um, and, and you know what? A lot of people call him during the season, uh, during the year, and say, hey. How come Ira's only on during football season, September to, to to January? Put him on all year long. He can talk hockey. He can talk baseball and, and uh, basketball. And, of course, you know, um, I think I'm five years older than the doggy. And, um, you know, guys, it, it's, it's interesting because everybody wants to appeal to the 25-year-old. Everybody wants that audience, the 25s, the 30s. But you know what? If you start mentioning people like Oscar Robertson, and 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 you mention uh, you, you know Bobby Hull, and, and you mention uh, Roberto Clemente. These people don't know what you're talking about. They don't know what you're talking about. And it's kind of depressing that way. And that's one thing I got to give Chris Russo credit for. You know, for instance, if a Roger Maris passes away, he um he does an hour of a show on Roger Maris. I mean, he was a big figure. He was a big figure. He yeah. broke Ruth's record. Um, and so he'll have somebody talking about Maris, and not not a lot of not a lot of radio people have that kind of perspective, that kind of context. And well, I, 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 I like that. I, I like made that comparison about last week when uh, Tony Esposito passed away at a too That's young right. age, just That's over right. seventy, and maybe one, of the, if not the greatest goaltender in the National Hockey League, certainly close to it. But I made the comparison between. Tony Esposito and Roberto Clemente, as you said, many people don't even know who Roberto Clemente is. But uh, Branch Rickey, the smartest general manager in my mind of all time, decided not to protect Roberto Clemente when he was the property of the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers in those days, and he was picked up by Pittsburgh, and the rest is history. Well, the exact same thing happened to Tony. He was selected by Montreal, the greatest franchise in hockey, played 15 games there, and they didn't protect him. And he wound up going to Chicago and becoming the all-time great goaltender in the history of the National Hockey League. You're absolutely right. Now, Branch Rickey didn't make a lot of mistakes. The Canadians didn't make a lot of mistakes. They had a GM named Sam Pollock, and, 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 and he ruled over the NHL. They, they, all had, they had all these great draft picks, and he, he wheeled and dealed, and they ended up with the, the number one pick in the draft, and after they win the Stanley Cup, I mean, that can't happen. You know, that's not good for the sport. Uh, so Montreal ruled the day. Now, they ended up with Ken Dryden, guys, so they didn't suffer too much. But, you know, Tony Esposito, and, and Tommy knows this, um, his rookie year with Montreal, rookie, he had 15 shutouts. Now, nobody, nobody in 50 years has topped that. Nobody. That's he correct. still has the that record, is, the modern-day record, and not a lot of people give Tony O a credit. 15 shutouts, boy, that's a big, big number. That sure the is. other thing was that the, in the first game he played, the only two goals he gave up were to his brother Phil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I covered I covered the Lightning a lot 
in, in yeah. the early to mid '90s, the late '90s, and Phil, <laughs> Phil and Tony were around, and, and Tommy was around, and it was great to be around Phil and Tony because they had a great bond together. I, n- I never really seen those two guys argue. Uh, I, I saw Phil light, light into Roy Cummings many times because he didn't like what Roy Cummings was writing. Uh, but that's Phil. You know, and Phil doesn't hold a grudge. You know, Roy'd come in the next day and, and they'd start from scratch. That was a, that's a great quality that Phil has. He doesn't hold a grudge. But, um, you know, Tony was pretty sharp. I think he was, uh, he was in Pittsburgh. He was a big-time executive in Pittsburgh. He was an assistant GM with the, with the Lightning. Uh, and <clears throat> he went to a lot of lightning games. I would see him a lot. Um, and Tom, you know, he used to go to that club. I forgot the name of the club, but um, you know, the one with all the buffet food. And and Tony and his wife used used to go to a, you know, almost if the all food the was free. Tommy was there. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> the food. That's right. Absolutely right. Hey, uh, Ira, you know, talk. And uh, I meant to tell Tommy this during the week. Uh, there's a big uh, Toyota dealer I've sent on pictures uh, called Beaver Toyota, and they also have a Chevy dealership in Jacksonville, and they have another Toyota dealership in St. Augustine, and they are in the process of building a twin uh, in St. Augustine off of 95 that's here. But what what I want to say is, well, the other day I'm uh, over there and I see the uh, general manager's car, He's got lightning, uh, van- uh, uh, what do they call it, vanity plates right, on his right. car. So he's a big, big uh, lightning fan. And uh, so I, I'm sure that we'll be hearing more. I've got to talk to him. You know, i got to get him in touch with uh, Tommy uh, about the, the lightning. But, you know, I want to get back to, to, to uh, Chris Russo. I think, does his son go to school uh, down in Tampa area or in Florida? He, he, he went he to UT, I mean, and yeah, he just graduated. He just graduated. Oh, he just um, graduated. Okay. Well, yeah. I wanted the you know Don will remember this because he was working at WIP when uh, Chris uh, first started in Philly, and then of course Mike and the Mad Dog, and then you know on to it. But I agree with you totally. I think that uh, he he brings the the current and the past, and does a magnificent job. And it's a shame that we don't have more uh, sportscasters, talk show hosts doing that. Okay, I think you know you're really, you know you're uh, right. The uh, the only yeah. other one I can think of, the only other one I can think of, is Costas, Bob Costas, and he's right. great. Yes. Um, yeah. But Costas, you know, like I remember a show that Costas did on MLB. It was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. It was an hour. And, and and he he had Mays and Aaron and he had Bench and and Colfax. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And of course, I grew up in the '60s. I mean, that's that's right. my meat and potatoes. And um, you know, and Mays is still with us. I mean, Mays is uh, I think he's ninety. He's ninety. Yes. Well, um, he was ninety this year. God bless him. And so you try to tell people about what Willie Mays was like as a player. They they don't know what you're talking about. Uh, hey, um, listen, I saw him playing Trenton at Dunfield. That's where he started out. That's outstanding. <laughs> and, of course, I'm a Giants fan, so I remember him uh, when they moved to, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the early 60s. And um, the guy was unbelievable. I think he won MVP awards 10 years apart. I mean, nobody does that. Nobody does that. And, uh, and, and, he, and he played himself to exhaustion. There was a couple of years where he, like, uh, he totally collapsed, like, in September. He, need, he needed two days off. He was uh, – 
driving himself so so hard. But, you know, some of the things you remember about Mays, remember when – now, Juan Marichal was my favorite player. And what's he famous for? Club in Roseboro over the head in, in 1965. Uh, probably the most horrific incident in baseball history. Um, and Marichal, he just snapped. He snapped. He lost it that day. Uh, Dines, Dodgers, pennant race. Uh, the You know, everything was boiling over. So he hits Roseboro over the head. Roseboro's bleeding. Uh, a, a bunch of people, Dodgers attack Marischal, knock him to the ground like they should. And and who walks Roseboro off the field and calms everybody down? Willie Mays. Um, and, and not not you know not a Dodger, a Giant walks over to Roseboro yeah. and calms him down, and says you're going to be okay, and puts a towel around his head. And 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 you know Mays had such respect from all his peers. And, guys, you got to say, I didn't see DiMaggio, and I don't know if any of you guys saw DiMaggio. I saw uh, him many times. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I, it's, I it's hard to imagine him. I got an interview with Joe DiMaggio that's on uh, – uh, I don't know even know what site you saw, to be honest. Boy, he didn't, give, he, didn't give, he didn't give a lot of interviews. He didn't give uh, a lot right. of interviews. You're right. You I, did it, I did it at um, the vet in Philadelphia. Uh, there was a rain delay, and, and – uh, uh, he was there. We were having dinner in the press room, and I knew him from uh, outside of baseball. I knew him from another area. But uh, right, right. and I said, I said, would you be kind? You know, it's going to be a rain delay. Would you come on with me? So he came on for 20 minutes, and uh, yeah. we had we had a great time. And, and uh, so yeah, uh, you didn't he, he you a, didn't you, you didn't mention Marilyn Monroe, did you? You didn't no, do that. Did no, you? No. <laughs> you know, the funny thing was. Strictly baseball. <laughs> before we let you go, we run out of time. Uh, you you were with the Lightning from the barn to where yeah. we are now with back-to-back Stanley Cups. That, that's yeah. a story in itself to where what Phil did and how he was able to maintain, keep that team in Tampa with no money. And yet, here we are now with back-to-back Stanley Cup championships, which is unbelievable. It's a fantastic story. Uh, if anybody could write it, it would be me. Um, and I, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something that Gary Bettman told me. I'm, I'm thinking ni- 1997, 1998. Uh, they had the, um, the, oh, you know, the the Asian the Asian owners, the Okubo. Nobody ever seen this guy. Uh, including uh, including Phil, including the commissioner. He had never the commissioner had never met the owner, never met him, and so people didn't even think the guy existed. And they had no money, they owed everybody. And I was talking to Bettman one day from his office, and no and place said, to play, and no place to play. And he said, Ira, everything is going to be straightened out down in Tampa when they get new ownership. And sure enough. Bill Davidson came in. Tommy was there, 1999, and he brought in a lot of money. He was a hands-off owner. He didn't live here. He, he lived in Michigan, but he brought his people down there, Ron Campbell, uh, uh, Bill Wickett uh, for PR, and he poured money into it. And, uh, and then they went through some more rocky times after Davidson passed away, and then they got Vinick. And say what you want. But Vinick is a model owner, and and to think that the Lightning are now a model franchise for the National Hockey League, uh, if you would have told me that 20 years ago, uh, I would have laughed at you, absolutely laughed at you. 
course. I would tell the guys, real quick, how they got started the first night. Remember that first night, how it got started? Well, uh, you you mean when Phil was talking to the Japanese or or, um, yeah, or, or the, the very the first, first game? The first game. <laughs> the first <laughs> game, the... Uh, the big so bad, uh, the big bad man. Chicago, uh, Chicago Blackhawks come into town. They're playing at Expo Hall. Uh, behind the behind the locker rooms, uh, there was a pond. The guys are going fishing an hour before the game. Roman Hamilik's got a fishing line in. He's trying to get a snook. And uh, next thing you know, he's checking a Blackhawk uh, an hour later. And Chris Contos, who uh, you know didn't go on to have a very distinguished career, but he. He scored four goals in the very mm-hmm. first Lightning game. I think they won 6-4. I spent mm-hmm. the whole night standing next to Phil. Uh, there was no press box. I mean, there wasn't much of a press box, so I stood next to Phil. He was so nervous. He uh, he sweated through his suit. He needed to change his shirt after the second intermission. And, uh, and it was a hell of a night. It was a hell of a night. The crowd was crazy. Uh, and they're playing out at the fairgrounds, kind of where uh, – you know the Hard Rock Casino is, and the amphitheater, and um, boy, that that was uh, that was something. And and the league said, "You can't play there. Are you crazy?" Bill made it happen. So God bless mm-hmm. him. And um, and when we lost Tony too soon, that, that was a tough one. A tough You're one. right. Hey, I, well, I never saw the go, play at the trough, but everybody. Say one thing. Everybody uh, you I know, talked, you talked to about said, a book on the Lightning. I think you ought to write a book, just like mm-hmm. uh, Don said, from the barn. To the uh, uh, penthouse, okay? That's right. Because I, I think that that would be a great book. And I think um, I think Phil would uh, cooperate with me. I think he would. I think he would. <laughs> I'll tell you, he cooperates with everybody. We've had him on the show a number of times, and he's a he's, fun uh, guy to have he, on. Because yeah, he's, a, he's, he's one of my he favorite guys. You, he gives you a lot of great stories and uh, and. <laughs> Some very interesting things that happened to him uh, when he was playing as well as afterwards. Uh, he's a, ter- a terrific, terrific guest to have on. And uh, how, he is Scotty. He, he Scotty. Scotty's a great guest, too. Oh, yeah, he's great. And, and, of course, you know, you needed $50 million, I think, in 1991 when they were awarding those franchises. And, and Phil, Phil, didn't have, Phil didn't have $1 million. But somehow, <laughs> some way. He convinced the board of governors that he was going to come up with fifty million, uh, a little mm-hmm. from here, a little from there, and, and they got the franchise. And the rest is history, gentlemen. Well, Pat Williams is the same way in New Orleans. <clears throat> I mean, not New Orleans, but in uh, uh, Orlando. Orla- Orlando. He he, uh, he came up with the Orlando Magic, and uh, he did it with very little money too. But I'll tell you, I, I go back to Tommy and to you, and I never saw. When they played at the Trop, I, I never. But everybody tells me it wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't that bad, but I mean, it's not the Ice Palace uh, or the now Amelie Arena, and they do a great job, guys, of uh, selling their brand. Um, you know, they, mm-hmm. they customer service is tremendous, um, and Tom knows that there's a guy named uh, uh, Lightwicky, Todd Lightwicky, who um, who was the CEO. Uh, and he did a great job. Uh, he used to walk the hallways during games and talk to fans. And, and not a lot of guys do that. Not a lot of executives do that. Uh, he's now head of the uh, new Seattle franchise. Uh, so they're in good hands over there. Um, but their their customer service is tough to beat. It's really tough to beat. And Lightning fans, they're diehards. And, of course, you know, mm-hmm. now they don't have any trouble selling out that building. And, and they're going to be good for a long time, guys. 
Roger. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, one of the things about the NHL, I've talked about it before, Ira, because I was op- at opening night at the Atlanta Flames in 72 when the Omni opened. I was there. I happened to be in, in uh, down here uh, at the time for the weekend when they imploded the Omni. And then I was here when the Thrashers started. And I yes. just think it's great. Uh, that uh, the uh, NHL has allowed Atlanta not to have a franchise because that last year, and, you know, the NHL made a lot of money uh, by allowing it to go to Winnipeg. I mean, the owners, uh, which were awful here, they did an awful job, but they got a lot of money and the league got a lot of money. But I really think that the NHL really needs to come back in Atlanta and because uh, it was, it was they, both franchises were very solid. They they were, you um, and I think uh, I think Donnie Waddell was was a guy that was with the Thrashers. Yep. Don Waddell, he's mm-hmm. a longtime uh, right. uh, NHL executive. Um, and uh, you know what? Um, Atlanta's a tough market, just like just like Florida's a tough market. It's mm-hmm. like you got to win. You know, it really helps to win, but of course. The Rays are showing that that might not be enough. You know, uh, it, it's really mm-hmm. depressing with the Rays, guys. It, it is. Um, and I don't care that it's the Baltimore Orioles. I don't care. To get 5,000 people when you got a first-place team, that, that's a terrible look. Mm-hmm. That's a terrible look. Every time mm-hmm. I go on Russo, he's asking me about the Rays, what's happening with a new ballpark. I tell him nothing. There's nothing going on. And that's a big reason why Joe Madden left, he, and he, he admits it. If he thought they were going to build a new ballpark in, in, in Hillsborough County, Joe Madden might not have left. But he, he saw the writing on the wall. He didn't think it was going to get any better. It's amazing how competitive they are. I mean, it's incredible with the money they spend compared to the Yankees, Boston. Um, Kevin Cash has proven himself to be one hell of a manager. Um, Amen. And they're very sharp in the front office. These analytic guys, they know what they're doing. They know no what question. they're doing. No question. I really want to thank you very, very much for this segment. We kept you a little bit longer than we said, but it's always a pleasure to have you join us. I hope you will in the future. I wanted to, I wanted to get back to the National Football League again because you covered the Bucks from day one, so I wanted to get back to that. But the next time you're on with us, we'll start off with the Bucks, and then we'll go around the circuit. Now, here's the only thing I'll tell you about the Bucks, gentlemen, after being out of training camp. They're loaded. They're loaded. And um, if they don't get a lot of injuries, significant injuries, especially Brady, uh, they're, go- they're going to be tough to beat. They're going to be tough to beat. Repeat. That's what happens when you get a former Temple coach to come down and take care of the program. <laughs> That's right. There you go. That's right. All right, boys. <laughs> hey, Ira, thanks, Ira. Ira. You're the best. Thanks, Ira. Thanks, man. You are, Ira. Right. Thank you. Take care of the mad dog for us. Right. <laughs> All right. Mike Zipsack is ready next. And, uh, boy, oh boy, we got so many things talking about between uh, – I was just talking about Baltimore. <laughs> well, that's where uh, where Mike is day in and day out, that Baltimore, Washington area, covering everything down there. And uh, what do you want to start off with? Uh, Mike, what do you want to start off with tonight? Oh, I'll let you guys choose. Well, I'll tell you, Mike, I got a, a, a press release just a little while ago uh, that the uh, United are going to have now face-to-face uh, interviews by the press uh, after soccer games. So I think that's a very positive uh, move, and hopefully that'll just tr- transition over 
uh, to other sports where they can get away from uh, Zoom, you know, after games. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, you know, we're hopefully, and I know with the Delta variant and the mask mandates and stuff like that, we're still a long way. But, you know, it's nice to see little signs like that, that things are starting to head in a general direction um, that goes back to, you know, like pre-COVID days. I was watching the uh, start of the European soccer season this season and over in England, all the stadiums were full. They were singing. It was like you, you wouldn't have known what was going on. So it was just great to see and get just some sort of sense of normality amongst, um, you know, in the way that things are done with sports anymore. Mike, uh, soccer is your, uh, your, your bailiwick, but the one thing uh, we don't normally talk about is women's soccer. But right mm-hmm. now, the last couple of days, oh, my gosh, the women's soccer team has got a lot of negative publicity about what happened, not only with the kneeling down, not only with the arguments about whether they should be making as much money as the male players, but uh, it seems like there's a lot of disorder within the, within the girls themselves. Well, I know like that the last couple of days have seen um, a couple of, uh, you know, Megan Rapino stepped back, say she's going to take some time off. Carly Lloyd formally announced her retirement. Um, certainly Carly retiring is not a big surprise. I mean, she's 40 years old, and the way the women's team operates, it's in a basically a three-year cycle. So they've got now actually like two years in between or – yeah, two years now, in between the Olympics and the World Cup, she probably wasn't going to figure into the World, the, uh, World Cup team. Uh, so it's a chance for them to start. I think um, the arguments over the pay for play, you know, it's always been a very, very complex one, um, how the pay structure for the women works versus the men. The women, when they did their collective bargaining agreement, took most of their um, money in guarantees and salary, whereas the guys got the, the men got theirs in bonuses. Um, the compensation hasn't been equitable when you consider the success that the U.S. women's team has had and how much money they have brought in the U.S. soccer, as opposed to the men's team that, you know, let's be honest, they missed the World Cup. Come on. They lost the cup to uh, Trinidad and Tobago. So, um, they, they, they've had their, their arguments there. As, you know, as for the on-field stuff, um, you know, it, it, that's going to sort itself out eventually. But uh, certainly, you know, we're just coming to the end of a cycle with them. So you'll see some roster changes over the next couple of months. Um, I would not actually be surprised if you don't see a coaching change. I mean, the performance in the World Cup, in the Olympics, wasn't that great. And I know that they have the fallback of, you know, COVID and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. But to be honest, the product on the field wasn't that good. They weren't that organized. And I think that some of that starts at the top. And you're right, um, Don, when you say it's kind of been chaos, I don't know about the coach. And certainly the leadership of U.S. soccer has kind of been silent. Um, Carlos Cordero uh, had resigned before COVID started because of uh, some comments he made. And the woman that stepped in um, has just kind of been in the background. And you almost feel as though it's been a rudderless ship for the better part of two years. 
Uh, so maybe now we can get that started started to get sorted out so that we can have a working federation again. Tommy, you're up. Have the Washington football team decided about a name right now? I knew you guys were going to ask, and I'm happy to tell you, Tommy, that they have still not decided on a name. But what they have apparently done is narrowed it down to three names and logos, which they still will not let us know until about February of next year. I was going to say, they already announced the fact they were not going to announce a a, a name until 22. Yeah, so they're not going to do it until after the Super Bowl. We know that. But they have this long-running web series uh, called Making the Brand, where they go through, and they did – they released one on Monday where um, Jason Wright, the president of the organization, was talking to Ron Rivera. It's all very scripted, and I've got to tell you, Ron Rivera is an absolutely awful actor. I mean, he could not come across more robotic if he was C-3PO and trying, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like him reading it, and they're talking it, and then they intentionally bleeped out what the names were and blurred his lips so you couldn't read it and all of that sort of stuff. So they're trying to hold this on until February. Um, I want to know how they're going to make it because, let's be honest, all it takes is one underpaid stock boy at Dick Sporting Goods who decides that the $11, the $7.25 an hour he's getting is not worth it to take a picture and put it up on social media, and everybody's going to know because you know the minute they drop the name, all the merchandise has to be out. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm wondering how they're going to keep this a secret for as long as they want to, but uh, that's what their intention is. Roger? Mike, I've got to say one thing uh, about Ron Rivera. Uh, I never, I've seen him many times. I've seen him in person. Uh, I have, do not agree with – well, I'm not saying you're wrong now, uh, but what he goes through with his chemo and uh, his uh, cancer treatment, he was not like that when he was at Carolina. And, uh, you know, going back uh, even earlier, uh, he was a uh, uh, an assistant with the Eagles at one time, I think with Buddy Ryan because he played on Buddy's uh, team with the, uh, with the Bears, you know, uh, when Buddy was defensive coordinator. But I just think he's a class act in every way. Oh, and I think that Roger, when somebody – Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he's not a class act. I think the world of him, I think that he is a great football coach and a great player. And when he gets up in the media and um, when he gets up and he gives interviews and you can tell just the passion of what he does, um, yeah, I'm 100% on board with you. I'm saying when they have him doing a scripted reading off of a script – and he's sitting there yeah. trying to do one of these social media webisodes. It's kind of funny because everything that he is on the football field, he's not. You could tell him watching it like he wasn't really enthused about doing this. Like, I'd rather be off, like, coaching my football team and stuff. And so you got to watch it. But I'm not saying anything disparaging about him other than I'm like, he's a football coach. He's not an actor. And he just well, that's kind of well, like, yeah, but – he could be also, uh, you know, you're right. He's he's not comfortable in that setting, but he is very comfortable uh, one-on-one with the media, in my opinion, what I've seen on, on uh, you know, Q&A, after games, oh, yeah. before games, et cetera. 
yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure if they put him in a news conference, he'd have been fine. But this was more like this is your um, this is your high school play where they're trying to film you trying to do like the high school movie for a commercial or something like that. It was just like you got the sense of watching what little bit of it. Like he was trying, but it it was kind of it was it was a little bit, and it's so like overdone and just you can tell it's like all for YouTube and social media and all of that sort of stuff. And the whole entire idea that they have to film this ongoing web series about finding the name and they're never going to is almost is almost farcical in and of itself. Like, How about the you know, name itself, uh, Mike? And, and uh, what's the what's the feeling down in the Washington area right now about how competitive do you think they're going to be? Uh, their former quarterback Smith, of course, got a nice job on television now. But uh, mm-hmm. give us an idea of what's the feel down there. Yeah. I mean, the feel is generally positive. You, you know, this is a seven and nine team uh, that won the division last year um, with. Four starting quarterbacks uh, over the course of the season. So um, it, it, the general feeling is that if they can get some consistent quarterback play, uh, that they can be there or thereabouts. I don't think anybody says, "Oh, this is a Super Bowl contender," but you know they have to feel confident in their ability to compete in that division. And if you watch the uh, I watched a little bit of the preseason game on uh, Friday against the New England Patriots, and that defense is really going to be stout. Um, I think the kid, Jamin Davis, um, he is exactly what Ron Rivera wanted from a linebacker, and he gets he, – you didn't hear a lot about him, but he moves around pretty well. I think that he was that kind of guy with his speed and athleticism and his willingness to learn from Ron, who was pretty doggone good linebacker himself. Um, right. I think he's going to be an asset to the team. And, then, you know, any time you have Montez Sweat and uh, um, Chase Young coming off the edge and Deron Payne and Jared Allen in the middle, uh, that's a lot of blocking that needs to be done. So I think the defense will be tough. They're looking for, um, you know, they're looking for a little bit more on, on the uh, wide receivers uh, on the offense. They think that Terry McLaurin uh, could take yet another step forward towards the elite of the elite wideouts, and they think uh, they've got some uh, compliments for him that can help the offense. And they know that Ryan Fitzpatrick likes to gamble. They know he likes to move the ball downfield, and. To be honest, that's not something that they've really had recently, a quarterback who's willing to make aggressive throws. Uh, Alex Smith wasn't that. Uh, Kirk Cousins certainly wasn't that. And, you know, um, Dwayne Haskins struggled at times at moving the ball down the field. So I think the general feeling around here when it comes to the Washington football team is uh, one of, like, quiet optimism. Roger? Well, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, I think it, the NFC East is still weak. Uh, I think it's going to be much better uh, than uh, last year. Uh, and, of course, yeah, it's even more of a COVID at, at that time impact uh, than this year. 
but has the uh, with the Redskins or with I'm sorry with the Washington football team has the uh, vaccine percentage increased? You know, Mike. Yeah, they went from forty percent, forty six. I think they were around forty to forty six percent when preseason camp started, and the latest numbers that I got were eighty seven percent now as of the last ones that they released. So, yeah. Mr. Well, Myron said today in the paper that the Giants are over 90. They're over 90%, although uh, something I did not know, I, I I always thought that they did have the flexibility of saying, look, you got to get the shots. But the Players Association has nixed that. They they can't make them get the shots if they don't want to get them. Well, no, yeah, but they, can, they have different protocol, Don. That's the yeah, whole they do. They, they have different protocol, out. but to me, uh, I would have thought somewhere along the line there would have been an agreement between the owners and the players that, hey, in the best interest well, of everybody, we've got to get the shots. Well, it is. I will tell you this. The Atlanta Falcons were the first team in the NFL, I've been told, that is at 100%. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say that, too, Roger, that it came out a couple of days ago that Atlanta made it to 100%. And you're starting to see these vaccine percentages creep up. Uh, I said a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that on the show, you know, it could at the tail end of the roster, I think, come down to whether or not you make the team. Um, I don't think for a second that Washington would cut Ryan Fitzpatrick. And I'm not saying that he's not. I honestly don't know what his vaccine status is. But if it was somebody like Ryan Fitzpatrick, who you have penciled in at your starting quarterback, I don't think that they would cut them. But I could see it coming and figuring in in later parts of the roster because the best ability in the NFL is availability. And if you have to worry about this guy being available, and then if they get sick, taking others with them. That's um, it. That's the key. Yeah, yeah, and then it, 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 even if – and by that, I don't mean, like, getting other people sick, but, you know, with the contact chasing and the protocols and the, the quarantines and stuff like that, you can have one guy who could t- potentially take out an entire unit. Um, Just look what happened to the Yankees. They, they played down in Miami. Not not only did the manager of the Yankees – or the uh, – the Marlins go down the drain, but three of the Yankees went down the drain with them for 10 days or 14 days or 13 days, whatever it turned out to be. Uh, Rizzo's just getting back in the lineup tonight. But, uh, you know, you're, you're putting everybody else in jeopardy, and you only have X number of games in the National Football League. You, it's going to be tough to make up games if you go down with four or five guys that are key players. Yeah, and especially for a team like the Redskins and the Giants, who – start the season on Sunday and then have that first Thursday night game. Right. So they're playing two games in four days. If for whatever reason they get a case uh, that last week in that interim period where they have the two uh, weeks off before the regular season starts, you know, it's not one game that they could be missing. It could be two or even more. And that's kind of a, it's a big deal. So I think that that could start to figure in a lot into who makes the team and who doesn't. And I think the players are starting to see that as well. Like, if you're not – you need to – you're part of a team, and if you're not going to do this, you know, we need you to be available. You're running the risk of not only taking yourself out of the game, but – 
four, five, six, seven other guys who might have to quarantine with you. Come on. I I I just I can't understand it. I really can't. I I would think in the best interest of everybody, the players' association would be 100% in favor of making sure that the players got it. Because, uh, as you say, you could take them out not only for one game, but maybe two games. Tommy, what's the situation with the Bucks? Well, I guess probably the same thing is for our total National Football League. I mean, just kind of close quarters, watch who you're with, and basically the same thing going through the whole NFL. I mean, just this. Knock on wood, no one's got the COVID with the Buccaneers, so that's good, good news. Do you know what the percentage is, Tommy, of the vaccination uh, number? Right. You know, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Frank, do you know what it is? I'm sorry. Do you know what the vaccination to... percentage is uh, for the Bucks? Oh no, no, I don't. Well, we should have asked Howard okay. what he was on with us. He yeah. would know because he, he said he was out of practice yeah. today, so he would know. But, uh, Mike, thank you very, very much as always. Doug's on the line, yeah. ready to come up for our next segment. But thank you very much. Always a little uh, interesting input from you, whether it's soccer, football, hockey, whatever it may be. Look forward to next week. Yeah, thank we you very much. Get to talk, we didn't even get to talk about the Washington Nationals, but I can summarize them in two words. They stink. they're on the road to recovery though (laughs) but listen mike have a great week okay take care i'll talk to you all gentlemen next weekend have a good or next well let's stay down there in the washington baltimore area because doug hamilton our resident pga professional who runs the country club down there and the golf (laughs) all the golf action in the washington area and uh, a lot of things going on this weekend it's at the beginning of the the fedex right here in new jersey not too far from me, as a matter of fact. I could almost see it from here if I were at the Liberty Bell. But first of all, Doug, nice to have you back with us. And uh, anything you new on the golf front before we turn around and talk a little bit about Baltimore and the Ravens? Um, nothing exciting, exciting. Um, as I think I mentioned uh, last week, you talked about the playoffs. And, uh, you know, next week the playoffs come to, you know, the Baltimore area uh, for week two. So, um you know, uh, looking forward to seeing uh, how the guys play at uh, at Caves Valley and uh, how they how they navigate their way around that golf course. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing a four day total for the winner of of uh, next weekend's event. I'm I'm guessing it's going to be um, more than 20 under par. Ooh, that's a wow. That, that's yeah, that's a route. <laughs> well, that's. It's you know it's it's a good golf course. Don't get me wrong, and it's a wonderful experience. Um, you know, it's a national club, and and uh, you know they spare no expense with um, you know the grooming of the place and and the facilities and those sorts of things. But um, it's a Fazio design, and and overall, there's depending on where they play some of the tee boxes. I mean, there's there's going to be some short holes, um, you know, and some drivable par fours and those sorts of things. So it'll be fun to watch, but at the same time. You know, I, I think you're going to see – it might even be mid-20s, you know, under par. So, I mean, it's it'll be fun to watch. Well, Mickelson got himself into a little free publicity yesterday, a little uh, financial gain at the, at the expense of a couple of other guys. So, uh, that was funny. He got a lot of publicity out of it. I'll tell you, he knows how to get the publicity. He's um, he's quite a character. I think that, that people that don't um, 
you know, enjoy his personality and pay attention to some of his sound bites or, or um, you know, things that he's uh, written or, or said or whatever. Um, I mean, Phil Mickelson would absolutely be the kind of guy that you, you know, want to have a beer with, you know, after you got done playing um, and just listen to the stories and talk about, you know, whatever. I think he has an incredible personality. I think he'd be really fun to, I don't know, go fishing with or something goofy like that, you know? <laughs> Roger? I think he'd be a, a very good golf commissioner, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's the kind of guy that uh, yeah. that you want. You know, uh, Doug, we were talking about it earlier uh, with Jim DiLorenzo because you went to George Washington, and I know yes. they're in the CAA, and uh, they were. I think it's still called the CAA. And, uh, of course, uh, Villanova football's in it. But, you mm-hmm. know, one of the things, and I'm, I, Don, I wanted to get this in because I, uh, be, and we'll get back to golf. But I wanted to bring up when Jim was on, when he talked about the money that was spent on football at UConn, and now they're probably going to go to what we always called, you know, one double A. But mm-hmm. I would say this, with the way the Southeastern Conference is going to be structured in a couple of years, with the added teams from the Southwest Conference, I want to tell you, it's going to change the landscape of college football, period. I, you know, hmm. I don't know what you guys think, but that's my opinion. Well, it's already going to hurt the Big 12 because they're going to lose two. But it's going to be good for the SEC because now Texas and Texas A&M will be playing one another again, which, mm-hmm. uh, you, you Oklahoma, know. Oklahoma, too, aren't they? Oklahoma. Yep. Well, they always there. played Oklahoma because that was a, the uh, – uh, National Fair Day in Texas, Fair Day, and it always mm-hmm. was in the Cotton Bowl they play uh, that particular mm-hmm. game. Yeah. And, uh, yes, so, but they never stopped that one. They they played, even though they weren't in the uh, conference any longer, they still played the, those two games. The teams always played together. Well, it's like Georgia-Georgia Tech, you know. I mean, right. Tech's in the ACC, Georgia's in the Southeast. But I'm just saying, overall, if if a team like Connecticut – uh, was having trouble and losing millions. Just think what a lot of other schools are going to be doing oh. because the Southeastern Conference is going to be like almost like uh, a, a minor NFL, really. Well, you're, you got, I think, Don, you were referring, you were talking Texas, Oklahoma, that's the Red River rivalry. That's right. Um, and I think what we're moving towards, and this is certainly just my opinion, but Someone is going to be able to figure this out, and I know this this has a lot to do, Roger, with the landscape as you mentioned. But there's a, there's so much money involved in in all these TV contracts and and all these bowl games and all these different things. But you know, we started out with a with a playoff system of of you know two teams, then we went to what four teams. So now someone's going to figure out how to do this so that you have eight teams. Absolutely. My opinion, my opinion is you're going to see um, all these schools that are going to merge themselves into eight conferences somehow, some way, and then each conference is going to have its champion and winner, and then you're going to have an eight-team playoff. So uh, that's just my opinion. Something of that nature has to happen, and you're going to have to get these independents, which there's only a few left. I think you got, what, Notre Dame, BYU, and – somebody i don't know but you're going to have to get all these teams somehow in a conference you're going to have to have eight conferences or six conferences or ten conferences or whatever it is you're going to go from that everybody's going to determine their winner and 
you know, it will be just like the NCAA in basketball. You win your tournament, you know, whatever, your regular season, you get an automatic bid. So there has, there has to be somebody smart enough to figure this out and, you know, devoid of the money that gets spent in contracts and all these different things. I mean, you know, why do you think Oklahoma and, and Texas jump ship from, you know, from one to one to, you know, why do you think we talked about this? Why do you think Maryland and Rutgers and all these other teams? I mean, people are going to jump ship to these conferences because there's more money to be made. There's better recruiting. There's better opportunities for, you know, their school as a whole when it comes to the athletic you know, scenery. So somebody has to figure it out. There has to be a way. I well, don't disagree, and I think one of the things, Roger, that's, you could touch on is the fact that uh, when the, the ratings came out today, obviously Alabama, uh, before anything happens, Alabama is selected as number one before anything happens, Ohio State, Clemson, uh, you know, right in there. But everybody is saying Georgia may be the sleeper team. And, uh, Roger, you're down mm-hmm. there in Atlanta. Is Georgia going to be the sleeper team to maybe win it all? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, maybe. Okay, because I think that, uh, you know, Kirby Smart's been there for now, uh, what, I guess four years. And, uh, you know, of course, he was the uh, recruiter uh, at Alabama before he came to Georgia, and he's a Georgia guy. Uh, but I, I can see that because the whole key is the, is the quarterback situation. You know, I mean, it's just like in, in any team. And uh, beginning tomorrow night, uh, they have the first – uh, televised uh, high school game, and I want to tell you, high school football here. I mean, that's what's great. I mean, when you love high school football like I do, I, it's great. I'm I'm planning on going to a game on Friday night, and uh, mm-hmm. I can't wait. But you not only have it on GPB, uh, public television, you also have it on ATL, uh, which is the sister station of uh, the CBS affiliate. So, I mean, it, you know, I mean, when you have it on major TV stations, mm-hmm. uh, you get to see why the Southeastern Conference uh, and the big yeah. teams get so many great players from Georgia. Right. Well, Don, I hey, can tell you that. It's a different world. Doug, it's a different yeah. world on, uh, you know, here. I mean, compared well, to it, up there. Let me, let me tell you this. I mean, you know, every Saturday uh, in this household, the uh, University of Georgia will be on TV. You know, that's that's the way it works here. I didn't go there, but someone in this house did. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, you know. And she so, rules, right. She well, rules. She, 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 for, she forgets my name every Saturday when Georgia's on for about three hours. So, <laughs> Well, before we get out of time, I want to touch, too, on, on the Ravens because uh, I know you've mm-hmm. got your finger on the pulse of the Ravens as well. and Yeah. Uh, what can you tell us that uh, may be a little news tonight about the Ravens? They got a tough uh, I, first you know, game too, boy. I'll tell you, they, they're not going to well, start up with an easy with hmm. an easy first game. If, if you know Coach Harbaugh, he he doesn't really care. I mean, you know, you you have to play the whole schedule. Um, you know, he makes his preparations each and every week for each individual team, and and um, you know, if you listen to whether it's uh, you know. Uh, Mr. Happy, as we call it, or, or Coach Harbaugh, or whatever. Um, you know, every person they play every week is the best team in football. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, I, I've been listening a lot to 105.7 uh, from the Baltimore area here where they talk about, you know, local sports, Orioles, uh, Ravens, et cetera. And, you know, they, they were talking about uh, the depth of, 
of the Ravens as a whole, um, you know, and where they felt like their strengths um, primarily were were in their favor. I mean, they, you know, kicker and punter and special teams, you know, that's that was Coach Harbaugh's bailiwick, um, you know, and that's kind of how he cut his teeth. So, I mean, we, we have, um, you can argue, I guess, top kicker in the NFL and Justin Tucker, um, you know, maybe second, whatever you want to call it. Sam Cook's been the punter for the last 15, 16 years. Um, you know, I think that uh, running back depth, J.K. Dobbins, uh, Gus Edwards, Justice Hill, a um, couple fullbacks they have, I think were pretty solid. I think the defensive line um, is, is really good um, in rotation uh, to, the, to the linemen they have. I think that uh, Coach Martindale is, is going to do a nice job of moving some of his pieces around. I think the signing of Justin Houston, the development of Jalen Ferguson, Tyus Bowser, um, the draft pick they just had uh, in the first round, uh, Pernell McKee, some of these guys will hopefully add some outside um, you know, pass rush to the, you know, to the defense. I think that their linebacking core, Patrick Queen, um, now they're under his belt in, a, in an actual preseason to be able to go through some of the different uh, mechanics of that defense. I think he's he's a budding star in terms of the inside linebacker position. Um, L.J. Fort, um, kind of underrated, smallish linebacker, but really good in coverage. He's actually a member at the club, um, so I get a chance to talk to him uh, when he shows up to play golf. Uh, their secondary, I think, is is really deep. Uh, Martindale loves this guy, Anthony Averett, who came from Alabama, uh, fourth-year pro, and I think he's going to step into a, a fairly big role uh, with Marlon Humphrey kind of sidelined. Um, Jimmy Smith still on the mend. Um, you know, the back end of their secondary, uh, Chuck Clark, I think is, um, you know, a, re- a really good safety. So I, I think their defense stacks up to be a bend but don't break kind of a scenario, um, aggressive when they need to be. Um, you know, offensively, we know that they're going to, you know, push the envelope with running the football, that with the retooled offensive line, good running backs. We know that Lamar Jackson is – uh, former MVP of the league. I think their um, their tight ends are going to be healthy this year. I think their wide receivers are are better with Sammy Watkins, a draft pick or two, and um, some development from some of the young guys. So I mean, I I think that a lot of people look at the Ravens as a playoff football team, and if they stay healthy, you know, we we don't know what what we can do from there. So Tommy, you're up next, and uh, we finally seen the final the final chapter of Tim Tebow. <laughs> I think Tebow is—he's uh, he's 34 years old. I think he's finally found out that his playing sports days are over unless he's going to go to bowling. Tommy, you're up. Talk for that. Tim Tebow, this Tim Tebow, this. But yeah, just just want to say, Doug, um, I learned so much of you being on the show this week. And oh boy, it's going to be fun. Fun week of watching golf uh, this coming weekend. It'll be maybe it'll be a fun sports weekend. And leading up to opening day for the NFL, that's going to be interesting. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm I'm super excited to, um, you know, begin the NFL season. I think uh, um, I'm in a, a different fantasy football league this year um, with some area PGA professionals that invited me to join them, and I'm pretty excited about that. Um, you know, I love me some fantasy football and just paying attention to statistically uh, who the best players uh, offensively are on, you know, each individual team and, you know, week in and week out trying to, you know, craft that lineup to, to get a win. So that, that's always exciting. Um, you know, with regard to Tim Tebow, I mean, look, um, 
you know, you got to take your hat off to the guy for, for continually trying different avenues to jump from football to baseball, back to football. And, um, you know, at 34 years old, you know, heck, I just turned 47. So 34 is still a young man to me in terms of, you know, being in his prime, you know, athletically, um, you know, he was such a, a good college football player and, and the kind of guy you'd probably want in your locker room. I mean, if you weren't on Florida's football team, you probably hated his guts. But, um, you know, you got to take your hat off to the guy for, for giving 100% effort for, you know, all the years that he did in terms of, of never just saying I, – I, he could have hung, hung his respective cleats up in whatever sport years ago. Absolutely, um, and uh, the fact that he you know, but, you know, stayed at the minor league level, he did get a side of play, yeah. but the fact that he well, like, you, he you was know. on the buses, I mean, here's a guy that's a Heisman Trophy mm. winner, national yeah. champions, uh, you know, NFL quarterback for a short period of time, yeah. success yeah. everywhere, and here he sure. is riding the buses at A-League, uh, right. you know, it's, right. it's amazing. Well, people that would make fun of him to say he was stupid or he wasn't good enough or whatever, I mean, come on, man, you know, you you only get one go around, you know, you gotta, it's like life is a big giant merry-go-round slap all the hands you can on the way around, you know? So he, uh, uh, you know, he did, he, he did the best he could to, to prolong his, his uh, athletic career. And, and no um, question. you know, well, and he's I, I, I love that. Act, uh, he's a class well, act, you know, but look at Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan right. went on the uh, road riding those buses in double A in baseball, right? Well, Tebow, yep. In, in our opinion, Tebow would be a class act, but to many, he's polarizing slash mercurial at best with regard to, um, you know, how devout of a Christian he is and, and some of the stances I think that he takes. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, you, you know, I think you have to judge the guy by the fact that he was a, a Heisman Trophy winner, a, a winning quarterback, and, um, you know, again, a, a leader-type personality that I guarantee you if, if he was in your huddle, and he said, go, you know, block this guy or, cut, you know, I'm going to throw you the football, that you'd, you'd run through a brick wall for that cat. So, um, you know, we, we, we can talk about, um, you know, the jump from, from college to NFL, whether it's um, at the quarterback position or whatever. I mean, we've seen any number of individuals that won the Heisman Trophy that just weren't quite good enough to, um, you know, play in the NFL. Um, gosh, I mean, how many people come to mind? I mean, you know, uh, Andre Ware, Chris Winkie, um, you know, there's the list, Eric Crouch. I mean, all those guys, you know, I mean, just <laughs> goes on and on and on. But, um, you know, I, I don't have a Heisman Trophy on my mail piece, so, you know, I can't, I can't really speak to that, um, you know, what happened well, after didn't that. He get, so. didn't he get the Broncos into the playoffs at, uh, early yes. on in his career? Yes. Yes, yeah, that's is. what I remember. Yeah. Well, and if, I mean, if you remember, was, Josh McDaniel was the head coach of the Broncos, and he, he traded up to get him at pick number 22. get him. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. And McDaniel you did know, that. I think, and here he's an offensive coordinator guru, okay? Sure. Well, he was gadgety in terms of, I think, trying to, to be innovative, and I think he thought that Tim Tebow would be the kind of guy that he could do some different things with. I mean, maybe that's why Josh McDaniel's not currently a head coach. I don't, I don't know, but um, – you know, he, he, I mean, he, I don't, I don't know who else he picked because I think that was their second first round pick uh, of that draft. It might've been Demarius Thomas. I don't recall. Um, he might've had them both. I can't recall. I don't know. Well, well he's he's got, the other thing he's was got they thought issues. he was going to make him a dual 
uh, Abdul Operati, a quarterback, but he never threw the ball right. quite as well as you have to. And, uh, but they thought he was going to yeah. be able to run the ball a lot more than he did. Sure. And, uh, you know, you just when don't walk you, into the National Football League and run the football over people like right. you do in college. Sure. Same and we, thing we with the guy about, with the Saints. Same thing yeah, with I mean, there. We, we talk about the, the Washington football team. We talk about the Ravens. Um, you know, but I, I can tell you, you know, that um, like Matthew Stafford from – uh, the Rams, I know they, they traded some picks and some different things to Detroit to get him, but I, Matthew Stafford is one of the guys that I, I think is going to have a, a very resurgent uh, year in terms of his career, um, you know, playing for Sean McVay. If he doesn't get hurt. Well, the Rams have a little more talent around him than the Lions. I mean, they've, they've been infa- you know right. infamous for, for being terrible. I mean, you had two of the best skill players at their respective positions that played for the Detroit Lions that are now in the Hall of Fame that retired before the peak of their career in Barry Sanders and, and Megatron, um, which I think speaks volumes to – I mean, I, I get I get the whole Megatron kind of retiring because of his body, and I think probably Barry Sanders would likely say something similar, but I, I think that both of those two were, were probably soured by, by the Lions and, and their – style I think of ownership slash you know team and, and what have you so um, I you know Matthew Stafford threw for 5,000 yards in his in his career in a season so I, I, it's it's possible that he can you know do that again I mean he's never really had you know you know post Calvin Johnson he's never really had anything offensively to speak of I mean he was a sitting duck back there for years but um, you know I think I think the Washington football team is is a very you know, kind of up-and-coming team. I think their defense is really good. They have some skilled players that I think are good. I mean, we've talked about the Ravens. Um, we know that Tampa Bay won the Super Bowl last year. Um, and Ira Johnson <laughs> said they are loaded. He was at practice yeah. today, and Ira was well, on with us for about 15 or 20 minutes, and he said, you know, the Bucks are just loaded with talent. i tell you, too, um, I- I'm actually interested to see Cliff Kingsbury and his – Arizona Cardinals, um, you know, they, they got A.J. Green. They have DeAndre Hopkins. Kyler Murray is kind of coming into his own. Um, I don't know how they'll be defensively, but it'll be interesting to watch their offense this year for sure. I think he'll I think he'll do some good things with that offense, and they'll be pretty explosive. So, um, you know, I think you'll see some, some regression. I think the Cleveland Browns are a great football team. I think they're going to run the, the football very well. Their defense is good. Okay, um, guys, time out for time on the field. Breaks is up against the clock. Thank you for yeah. coming on, guys. Have a great hey, Tommy, weekend, let, me, let me – I wanted to ask Doug real quick. Did you see Calvin Johnson's uh, Hall of Fame acceptance? Yes. Okay, I, I did. that man was in pain, pain for yeah. years. I mean, and that's, yeah. that is his – that is now his goal in life. Well, listen, yep. Tommy, Frank, Frank is always hey, great. Guys. Don, Doug, have a great uh, week. Before, God bless. Take care, fellas. We'll do it again next hey, week. Guys, yes, sir. Before you guys go, I just want to uh, let everybody know that uh, we had a, um, a, a great friend, uh, uh, Jay Greenberg, uh, who covered the um, the fires yes. for many, many years for the uh, Daily News, passed away today. And uh, so we want to send uh, our best wishes out to his family. Great writer. Absolutely. 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 Mm-hmm. We appreciate that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, have a great week, guys. Take care. Okay, you too, Raj. Ladies and gentlemen, these programs are brought to you each and every night of the week in grateful appreciation to the men and women of the United States Armed Forces, men and women of police and fire services. 
when you're out there and you see somebody in uniform, please let them know you know they're there. These are very tough times for police officers, firefighters, and men and women in the armed forces. These programs are dedicated to those who lost their lives on the duty. Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman David Curter, Patrolman Jerry Colcat, Sergeant Thomas Banger, Patrolman Jeffrey Hazowitz, Detective Randy Bell, Detective Ricky Childers, San Diego Officer Mike Handler, Lieutenant Mike Zerber, Newcastle County Police, Patrolman Off, Anopho Crispin, Lakeland PD, Chief Al Hogel, Longbow Key Police Department, Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department, Highway Patrolman Alonzo Moses, Philadelphia Highway Patrol, Highway Patrolman Brian Lazaro, Philadelphia Highway Patrol, Highway Patrolman Brian Murphy, Plymouth Township, PA, Highway Patrol, Lieutenant Bob Neary, Philadelphia Fire Department, Sergeant Mike Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Department, Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, Philadelphia Fire Department, Deputy Robert Germain, Windermere, Florida Police Department, Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol, Lieutenant Joyce Craig Lewis, Philadelphia Fire Department, Patrolman Charlie Condit, Tarpon Springs Police Department, Hillsborough County Deputy Sheriff Charlie Cutloff, Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Fire Department, I'm sorry, Philadelphia Police Department, Sergeant Rodney Bond, Delaware State Police, Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Jerry Ficus, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Artith Hope, Wilmington Fire Department, FDLE Special Inspector Vinny Galaccio, Delaware State Trooper, Corporal Stephen Ballard, Kissimmee Patrol Officer Matt Baxter, Semi Sergeant Sam Howard, Captain Matt Letourneau, Philadelphia Fire Department, Deputy Bill Gentry, Highland County Sheriff's Department, Deputy Clay Zerba, Clay County Sheriff's Department, Deputy Nanny Clarona, LA County Sheriff's Department, Deputy April Rodriguez, Pasco County Sheriff's Department, Officer Bob McKetchen, Biloxi, Kentucky Police Department, <clears throat> Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol, Sergeant Brian LeVake, um, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department, and Deputy Mike Malik, and all County Sheriff's Department. My brothers and sisters, although you may be 10-7 at this point in time, at some time we'll be 10-10 at the table of the award. Until that time, may the roads rise up to meet you. May the winds be always at your back. May the rains fall softly in your face, and the sunshine lightly. Until we meet again, may the good Lord keep you and your families always in the hallow of his hands. Good night. God bless. Have a great week.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.